Good morning, everyone, and thank you for coming back and joining me today on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and today I'm very excited to share two of my all-time favorite guests with you on the show. First up today, I'll get a return visit from top 100 instructor, and really, let's be honest, one of the top five instructors that you'll find anywhere on the planet, and that's Mr. Tom Patry. Tom spent time last week out at Augusta National, and uh, so I'll get his thoughts on what he saw there. Plus, his reaction to his good friend Freddie Couples having another great tournament at 57 years old, though, by the way. For those of you in and around the state of Maryland, Tom will be back up at Bully Rock, a fantastic-looking golf course uh, right up there on the Susquehanna River in the northeast part of Maryland. So be sure to check him out there this summer. Tom will be along to join me here in just a few minutes. Following Tom, I'll get a return visit from the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. You know, Peter is absolutely outstanding, and what a wonderful time I've always had, you know, getting to listen to Peter share his stories and his thoughts and recollections over the history of the great game of golf. So I'll get Peter's thoughts on the Masters as well. We'll also get his thoughts on the World Golf Hall of Fame and who should be in and who should be out. Plus his thoughts on, you know, is there a next greatest golfer who hasn't won a major now that the monkey is off Sergio Garcia's back? Peter will be here to join me a little bit later on in this half hour. So we've got a lot of great stories, a lot of great instructional tips coming your way on this edition of Next on the Tee. Thank you so much for being here and taking the journey with me over the next hour. Next on the Tee is sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear a word from our friend Steve Rondanero about all the great things they've got going on up there. Play the courses the champions play. The Pete Dye and Donald Ross courses at French Lick Resort. The 2017 NCGOA National Course of the Year. Our Pete Dye course hosts the first ever Senior LPGA Championship presented by Old National Bank this July. French Lick's Donald Ross course is looking good as it turns 100 this summer and hosts the Donald Ross Centennial Classic Symmetra Tour event. Book your golf vacation now at FrenchLick.com. Yeah, be sure to go to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself how great a place it really is and to book your stay. And speaking of great, if you joined me about a month ago, you heard about the meteoric rise of the Bradley Putter Company from concept back on Black Friday last November to one of the, one of the sensations at the PGA Merchandise Show in January. Bradley Converse, the owner of Bradley Putter's, Join me, and uh, you know we're proud to be uh, partnering with Bradley to help promote their unique and outstanding line of putters. They're made from burl wood, folks, and these aren't ornamental putters, my friends. People are raving about the look and feel of the Bradley putter, and I'm excited and looking forward to getting mine. They're custom-made based on the shape and the color that you like. Go online to bradleyputters.com to see how fantastic this new line of putters really is. Please also check out our friends over at the Bobby Jones Company, right? Springtime is here, right? Their spring collection is now out there. Fresh new colors, new additions that, you know, have genuine, enduring character. From new polo-style shirts to long-sleeve button-down shirts to tech shorts that are ready to hit the links on or any other warm-weather outing that you might have, the Bobby Jones brand will keep you feeling great and looking great, whether you're on the golf course or in the office. And when you place your order, enter the promo code NEXT ON THE T to get 10% off. So you can freshen up your wardrobe from an iconic brand, save a little money too. So go to bobbyjones.com and again, enter the promo code NEXT ON THE T to give yourself a fresh new look for this spring. Plus, while you're in a Bobby Jones frame of mind, go to bobbyjonesclubs.com to see the great line of drivers, fairway woods, and hybrids designed by one of the game's most influential equipment designers, Jesse Ortiz. 
Like his father, Lou, and Bobby Jones himself, Jesse has a passion for the game of golf and golf club design. You remember his great tri-wood medal, you know, fairway medals from his days back at Olimar. Well, now he's putting his creativity and innovative designs, you know, to work creating great new equipment for the Bobby Jones Company. Check them out online by going to bobbyjonesclubs.com. I also want to give a shout-out to our friends over at Callaway Golf. Callaway has been the fastest-growing golf brand since 2013, and the Chrome Soft Golf Ball has been a major part of the reason why. Chrome Soft is extremely fast, incredibly soft, and unbelievably easy to control, which is why Phil Mickelson, Patrick Reed, Jim Furyk have all changed over to the Chrome Soft. You've got to be willing to change to get better. Chrome Soft and the new Chrome Soft X are in stores now. See what they can do and how well they can you know, help you advance your game by going to CallawayGolf.com. Chrome Soft, it's the ball that changed the ball. And every week here on Next on the Tee, we like to kick off the show by saluting the brave men and women that are out there serving in every branch of our military who are tuning in around the world on the Armed Forces Radio Network. We want to thank all of you for the daily sacrifices that you and your families are making to protect our freedoms and our liberties. We also want to thank our veterans out there for all that you and your families have done for us over the years. It's through your strength and your efforts that our way of life continues to be possible. And folks, please, if you happen to see a member of our military when you're out and about in your daily life, wherever you might be, grocery store, restaurant, airport, please stop for a moment and tell those folks thank you. They are the ones who should be our true heroes. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and all the great folks over at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It is such an honor that Next on the T is a part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is a guy who is annually one of the top, you know, top 100 instructors named by Golf Magazine, and that's Mr. Tom Patry. Let me remind you a little bit more about Tom's background. He grew up on Middle Island, Long Island, up in New York, and in 1973, he won the Long Island Boys Championship and the Long Island Private Schools Championship. In all, he won 15 events during his junior golf career. He played his college golf at Florida Southern, where he was a two-time first-team All-American. In 1981, he led Florida Southern to the Division II National Championship, and he won the individual honors, too, oh, by the way. In 1992, he was inducted into the Sunshine State Conference Hall of Fame. Tom turned pro and played professionally from 1981 to 1988 in the U.S., Mexico, Canada, Europe, and over in South Africa as well. He later became the director of golf instruction at Westchester Country Club, site of the Westchester Classic, and so many other PGA and LPGA tour events. He's been named Teacher of the Year everywhere he's been. Golf Magazine, like I said, has named him a top 100 teacher every year since 2000. And beyond all of that... Tom is an excellent writer. His works can be found in numerous publications like Golf Magazine, Golf Digest, Golf Illustrated, and he's written a wonderful book titled The Six-Spoke Approach to Golf that's five-star rated on Amazon.com, and you've likely seen Tom on the Golf Channel's Golf Academy Live as well, and I'm extremely honored that he is back with me again on Next on the Tee. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for coming back on the show. Chris, it's a pleasure to be with you. And before I forget, I want to thank those brave men and women as well. What a great shout out you give at the beginning of every show. And we can't say enough to those people and say thank you enough times. So uh, that, that's a great opening. I appreciate that. And thank you for saying that and you know, greeting our, our, our wonderful military personnel listening in. Tom, I wanted to start our time with you this morning by getting your thoughts on the Masters. I know you were on the grounds there for a few days. Talk about your experiences this year and, and what you thought about what we saw between Justin Rose and Sergio Garcia and also 
your good friend Freddie Couples. Yeah, Chris, you know, it's always special. I, I don't get to go every year. Uh, I've been a few times, but I think it was my sixth Masters. Um, it's so special going up there. Uh, I don't know why I don't go every year. Um, I always kick myself when I uh, I go back again like I did this year. For why, why wasn't I here last year? It's um, it's an incredibly special place. They, the members and, and the club uh, at Augusta National do such an unbelievable job in welcoming the patron in and, and especially welcoming the PGA professional in. And, and uh, it's just nothing like it. Uh, it was it was a special event, obviously, with Sergio um, getting the monkey off his back. Uh, you know, watching on Sunday, I was there from Wednesday to Saturday, and then over at Sea Island for a couple of days with my wife uh, for a little R and R. So we watched Sunday from Sea Island, but it it was you know it was you know I, I'd have to call it an epic battle. I mean, the shots they hit coming down the stretch, the quality of golf. Um, you know, it never it never fails that Sunday on the back nine is special. Something always, you know, something crazy always happens. The recovery by Sergio on 13 to make five and Justin not getting up and down and then turning around and hitting driver eight iron into 15. It just it just boggles my mind to watch these guys hit the golf ball as far and as straight as they do time and time again. The precision um, is just off the charts. We, we're just we're just watching a game. Uh, that, as Bobby Jones said to Jack Nicholas, I'm not familiar with. Um, it, it's it's just incredible. And and then Freddie turning back the clock again, you know, in his 50s. Uh, I watched Freddie every hole um, from uh, 1 to 18 on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And on Saturday, he was paired, Chris, with uh, John Rahm, who we know is just maybe one of the up-and-coming great superstars in golf at you know, 22 or 23 years old, whatever he is. And John hit it past Freddie one time all day. I mean, it was just unbelievable, the ball striking. Uh, he had a rough week. Um, I'd call it a rough week with the flat stick. If he putted just reasonably well, he actually would have contended. That's how good he hit it. I, I didn't see anybody the entire week hit it any better from tee to green than Freddie did. Um, and it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that he might hang around for a few more years and, 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 and make a run. If he has one good putting week in the next couple of years at Augusta, we might see something very, very special happen, like we almost saw happen with Watson, you know, at, at Turnberry. It, it was a fun week. And, and to that point, Tom, what is it about Augusta National? Have you talked to Freddie about it? What is it about being there and being on the ground that allows him to, you know, continue to contend year after year and brings out the best in him? Sure, we, we talked about it a few times, Chris, actually. You know, he's still stay in touch, and, he, you know, he usually stays with us during the uh, senior tour event here in Naples at the house. And, uh, it, you know, it's really, Chris, it comes down to one very simple thing. It's a love affair. It's one of those places where he feels comfortable. The, 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 the shot shapes fit his eyes. He, he, um, he gets, you know, pumped up like a player would for the Stanley Cup playoffs or for the Super Bowl or the World Series. It's it's his it's his special place you know when i think i think players on tour have have events that they just feel comfortable at and they feel special at and they get excited about whether it's some place close to where they live or they like the design of the golf course or they have friends that live in town or whatever it happens to be but that's that's freddie's super bowl and and uh he gets on the grounds and it, it, the clock just gets turned back and he's a kid again and, and he's excited to be there um you know, it's horses for courses, and that's that's his course. 
Tom, I read an interesting article about you and Fred at the 1988 Greater Greensboro Open. I read that he had volunteered to caddy for you, and as you were trying to qualify for the tournament, he made a costly error that cost you a two-stroke penalty. Do you mind sharing that story? <laughs> well, that's that's a long that's a long time ago, Chris. It's funny. Um, what had happened was I had been staying with him the previous week at TPC. Uh, at, at that point in time, the schedule was tournament players championship and in Greensboro. So I stayed a couple of days at TPC and uh, I was going up to try to Monday qualify for Greensboro, still playing at the time. And he, uh, he made a phone call to a fellow named Harold Moose, who's a wonderful uh, guy that lives in Greensboro. Because uh, he and uh, Jay Haas always stay with Mr. Moose. And he asked Harold if I could get up there a little early and stay with him as well. And he was, he obliged. So I went up a little early, played my practice rounds at a place called the Cardinal, which is a Pete Dye golf course in Greensboro, really hard golf course. And uh, so I got done with my practice rounds. They flew in Sunday night from TPC. And we're sitting around the dinner table, and he says, what time are you playing tomorrow? And I said, you know, whatever I said, 7.30 or 8 o'clock, whatever it was. He said, well, I'm going to get him caddy for you. I said, Sal, you, are you crazy? I said, it's a Monday qualifier. There's nobody even out there, you know. And I said, you know, just sleep in. You just had a long week at, at, at you know, TPC, and I'll, I'll be fine. I'll see you back around noon. He said, no, no, I'm going to catch I said, forget it. Don't, don't even think about it. So I got up in the morning, went down to get some breakfast early. And he's sitting at the uh, he's sitting at the kitchen table with a pair of shorts, and a t-shirt on, and a pair of Nikes on. He says, "I'm going with you." I said, "You you are so crazy, man! It's 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 you know it's 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 not a big deal." And Freddie never understood because he never had to do it. What Monday qualifiers were all about? I mean, he he never had to do that in his career. So anyway, we went out and we warmed up, and you know, there's generally nobody at a at a Monday qualifier because it's the players, it's the officials, and there's nobody really around. There's no galleries to speak of. By the time we arrived. I hit balls, I stretched, warmed up, chipped and putted. When I got to the first tee, there were about 250 people around the first tee. One guy made a phone call, Freddie Couples was out here, another guy made a phone call. So they certainly weren't there to watch me, they were there to watch my caddy. So off we went. Um, and if you know anything about Monday qualifiers, if you don't shoot, you know, 65 or 64 or 66, you're not even sniffing. So we got around to 19, I drove it down the right side of 9, and the ball just kind of trickled into the first cut of rough. And I was playing a title of six. I'll never forget this. And to my ball, put the bag down. Fred got there first. I got my yardage. I walked back to my golf ball. I hit my second shot. I took about five or six steps, and there was another ball laying there, and it was a title of six. Well, what had happened, the ball that I thought was a six had turned over on its side, and I couldn't see the loop on the eight. It was an eight. And he looked at me, and I looked at him. I picked up the second ball and just started walking, and he kind of chased after me and said, well, what are you doing? I said, come on, let's go. I walked up on the green, grabbed my ball, handed my, my card and signed the other card to the other player in the group. I said, let's go. And I walked over the back of the green into the parking lot. And he said, I don't understand. I said, pal, that we make, we make double there. We're, we're two over at the turn. I said, we have to shoot like 18 on the back nine to make, make the qualifier. So you don't understand. He said, no, you're crazy. What if you go shoot 30 on the back? I said, 30 would be 68. I can promise you that's going to miss by four or three. And he was, he was kind of arguing with me. We got in the car. We drove back to the house. He called out to the club later on because he was curious to see what made it. There were three 63s and a 64. <laughs> so that was his, I think that was his caddy debut in Swan Song on the same event. <laughs> That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. So, Tom, just, you know, curious to get, you know, your feelings about Augusta National. We know, you know, it's, it's, speci it's a special place, you know, for Freddie and, and, you know, the other guys playing in the event. But what's your favorite part 
about being at Augusta National. What does it feel like for you when you're walking the grounds there? You know, Chris, as a little boy, when we, we want to have a dream about playing professional golf, which I always had, I think we all get on the putting green in the evening as a little kid and we're putting at eight or ten footer, you know, to win the U.S. Open, to win the PGA, to win the British Open. I was always putting as a little boy to win the Masters. I mean, that was always my favorite from day one when I started playing golf. It was something I watched on TV every April and sat in front of the TV and I was transfixed by the grounds and by the colors and by the, you know, the, you know, Amen Corner and, and Bobby Jones, who was always one of my, one of my heroes as a kid and, and the history and the fact that it was the same venue every year in the green jacket and so many things are unique about the Masters. You know, I mean, it, it's, um, if you haven't been there and you're a golfer and you're listening right now, it has to be the number one thing on your bucket list. You know, I played in two British Open qualifiers. Um, you know, I played in some events overseas as, as a player, the South African Open, the South African Masters. Um, it, it, you know, I've been to U.S. Opens. I, I've been to PGAs. I've been to President's Cups. I, I, yeah, I just, it's, it's different, Chris. It's really, really different. As a, as a golfer, as a professional, as a PGA member walking on those grounds, there's a, there's a very deep, hallowed respect for what Clifford Roberts and Bobby Jones did there and what, and what that membership has preserved through the years historically. You can't, you can't describe it to anybody that hasn't been there. If you haven't been there, it is an absolute number one, not even a close second, must on your bucket list. Have you ever had an opportunity to actually play the course, Tom? I don't want to tell the story because I might start crying, Chris, but I've been invited twice and both times I couldn't go because one, because of a back injury and two, because of where I was geographically. And I, and you know, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I, I almost, I almost get the press talking about those two events passing me by. I hope someday I get another invite. It's, um, as, as a non-competitor now, as a teacher, that would be, uh, that would be a dream come true. So no, I have not played the golf course. Wow, no no rain check on the invite? Uh not not currently, so I hope somebody's listening out there, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> hint, hint. So, yeah, no doubt. So Tom, I wanna transition over to, you know, some, some playing tips and, and some of the great things that you have to offer. One of the things that, you know, I wanna bring out is your book, first of all. What what a wonderful book you have and certainly like I say you know five star rated out there on amazon.com the six spoke approach to golf so and one of the things you address in the book Tom is advice on how to you know quiet your mind on the golf course and that's one of the things we talk about a lot you know here on the show is you know sort of the mental side of the game and how not to get down on ourselves and you know be, being more positive and that sort of thing. Can you give us some tips for how we can do that? How can we quiet our minds down and just learn to relax and play more freely? Well, there's so many things that happen on the lesson team from day to day, but before I go there, Chris, I want to give a shout-out to Rick Jensen, who did that that particular spoke with me in the book. Rick Jensen is a wonderful sports psychologist based in uh, West Palm Beach and Fort Lauderdale, Florida, um, at Parkland Golf Club. Um, Rick is one of the premier people out there in that field, and he was kind enough to partner in that, spoke with me in the book. Uh, he's worked with so many great players on the PGA and LPGA tours through the years. I think that one of the things the recreational player doesn't realize, and we talk about this a lot on my lesson tee, is 
everybody thinks they're the only person going through anxiety on the golf course, that they're the only one, that everybody's watching them and all eyes are on them, whether you're on the first tee during a casual round of golf or the first tee during your club championship. Everybody has this feeling that they're the focus of everybody's attention. And the truth is, Chris, that everybody is so selfish about their performance, nobody's paying attention to you. They're paying attention to themselves. So I think one of the first things people have to understand about quieting things down inside the old coconut is that, you know, the only person really paying attention to you is you. Nobody else is really paying attention because they're too worried about their own games. Um, I think as adults, we bring a lot of baggage to the first tee that, that children don't bring to, them, to my lesson tee. I mean, kids get up there, they hit a, hit a bad shot, they grab another ball, they try it again. You know, it is, there's no baggage. It's just, you know, let's do this again because it's fun. Um, I think the adult is so worried and they're so tied up in their self-esteem and their anxieties that it really hampers their performance. And uh, you can't perform at any kind of a, a level of competence with that kind of anxiety racing through your brain at a million miles an hour. Uh, the second thing is um, if there's a particular shot in your bag that they're having trouble with, whether it's a sand shot or, you know, it's a short putt or, or whatever it is, or it's a chip shot over a pitch shot over a bunker from a tight lie, the anxiety level races through the ceiling. Um, so I, I do a lot of things mechanically to to try to trick the brain to calm them down. And, and the, list would, the list would be too long to mention in the show of this length, but I think that I think that the first thing people should do is is, is to try to read a little bit. There's so much great information out there, whether it's you know the, the series of books that Bob Rotella wrote, or so many things you can find online now. Uh, I think you have to understand how the mind works, and people don't understand the role of the conscious mind and the subconscious mind and, and how you kind of program those things in a positive manner. There's so much great stuff out there uh, that's been written now and talked about, and I, and I really advise people to go and have a session, at least one session, with a sports psychologist of some kind of competence. Um, you know, it's the last thing, it's the last a avenue or channel that we don't know enough about. And that's how the brain really works and functions. But we've made huge strides in the last 10 years, and people can really become um, a lot more astute in that area and should. Tom, one of the other chapters in the book is, you know, you talk about a simple, sensible, short game technique, right? And, you know, so much of the game, right? We talk about it all the time. It's played from 100 yards in, and, boy, if we could just get better – you know, I, I know, like, you know, looking at my son, you know, playing on his high school team, boy, they, you know, those boys love to get up there and get on, get on the practice range and get their drivers out and just start, you know, seeing how far <laughs> they can hit the ball. And they, they have a fascination, right, with length and the driver. But really, if you want to score better, right, you, we need to be better chippers and putters. Talk about, you know, one or two right. things that we, that we can do to help us hit the ball closer to the hole. Yeah, you know, Chris, I, I say to my kids, you know, far is fun, but short is sweet. Um, you know, I, 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 I just left the club a little while ago. I get a couple early lessons. I'm on my way to give a playing lesson somewhere else right now. But, uh, I, I stood on the practice tee this morning and once again, I watched the practice tee was full. There was not, there was not a spot open on the tee. Uh, every, every stall was taken and I looked over at the short game area and it was vacant. I just kind of shook my head and I, I, I wondered, I, I often wonder when it will come to a point when the general public wakes up and understands time usage and time management and how the game is really played. And, and I, Chris, I don't even go to 100 yards. I, I tell the average recreational player, if you can play better from 30 yards and in, if you could tomorrow 
folks, listen out there. If you could tomorrow from 30 yards and in never skull one and never chunk one again, if you could just pitch it on the green somewhere to some kind of reasonable proximity, you never sculled one or chunked one again, how many shots would that be worth to you in 18 holes of golf? Just the average player. And then for kids playing junior golf or being competitive in the high school level, the junior golf level, AGAGA, whatever, wherever they're playing, you know, these kids, so many kids come to me today, Chris, that can really hit great golf shots. And, and the distance these young kids are hitting it today is is, is just incredible how, how talented they are with their speed and their balance and their athleticism. I can't believe that I say to most of my kids that are that are accomplished, somewhat accomplished junior players, can you hit a knockdown wedge? Can you hit a three-quarter punch shot? Can you fight a wedge? Can you can you you know can you hit a little cut shot over the bunker? And they look at me like I've got three heads. No, I hit it one way. I hit it straight up in the air as hard as I can and as far as I can. You know, I, I, I it's amazing to me to go back and you watch, you know, Tom Kite hit a wedge shot uh, in the last generation, or Lee Trevino hit a wedge shot. I even see tour players say that, that don't really understand wedge play um, and, and, and how important it is to be able to manipulate that club and do different things with it. I, I would encourage people out there playing the game to go back to their coach and say, listen, I want to wrap my arms around a full season of learning how to play golf from 30 yards in. Anything that occurs, anything that could possibly occur, a chip shot, a pitch shot, a bunker shot, a bump and run shot, a hybrid bump and run up into the green, and putting the golf ball, dedicate one full season to that, I think the whole golf world would change. And Tom, you do a lot of video swing analysis, but your, your Twitter feed is covered with videos that are being sent to you that you're taking a look at. Talk about how people, you know, essentially all over the world, can send you videos of their swing and how you can help them. Yeah, because I've got about 200 people right now that I have a relationship with that I've never met and I never will. Um, you know, people in, you know, overseas countries, all over this country that send me video for analysis. And if you go to my website at tompatry.com, under the instruction tab, there's a V1 page. V1 is an app you can load onto your uh, smartphone or onto your tablet and basically send me video and you'll get back full audio, full video, full graphics. And, and I filmed 450 drills in a TV studio that I can seamlessly attach to your video after I've analyzed and talked to you and send it back to you. And we actually have a relationship where we create programs for people, and, and it's like they're standing in front of me taking a lesson. Um, it's, it's really been a, a wonderful technology. It's a very powerful technology. Um, it's amazing how the, how the golf world and instruction has changed in the last 10 years, because not even 15, 10 years, and how you can stay connected to your instructor. I also stay connected with my New York and Maryland clients um, during the winter when they can't get to me and they're on vacation somewhere, and they send me video. Or when I go back up to the Northeast during the summer to teach, my Florida people send me video. So we don't have to be disconnected at all, even though I have a northern two northern venues and a southern venue. We stay connected 24-7, 365. So if you haven't seen that, folks, check it out at TomPatry.com under the instruction tab, V1 Video. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful way to create a relationship with a coach. And speaking of helping people, Tom, you're going to be back at Bully Rock Golf Club this summer. Talk about your summer golf schools and how people can get instruction from you live and in person up there. Yeah, well, thanks, because I appreciate that. That's a huge plug. I really appreciate you saying it and asking. Um, I'm at Bully Rock and Have the Grace, Maryland, two weeks every month from June through September. And I'm at Colonial Springs Golf Club on Long Island from June through October, one week a month. So all my New York-based people, Connecticut, New Jersey, 
can find me either on Long Island or in or in Maryland uh, throughout the uh, summer and fall seasons. And the best way to get to me is uh, at uh, 239-404-7790 or at tpatry at mindspring, M-I-N-D, mindspring.com, or through my website at tompatry.com. Um, because my time is limited both places, uh, most of those things get booked well in advance. Like I think most of uh, most of my June stay on at Colonial Springs on Long Island is almost full already, and I usually work out about a month in advance. So uh, if people are interested, they should get to me relatively soon. And Tom, before we let you go, let our listeners know. Remind them how can they stay you know up to date with all the great things that you're doing. You talked about your website, TomPatry.com, but how can they follow you on social media as well? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Chris, I'm at all those places at Tom Patry. Um, LinkedIn, LinkedIn, you know, it's just it's just a simple, check, you know, plug in my name, I'll pop up. Uh, Instagram as well. Um, but more importantly, Chris, you know where they should really stay in touch? They should really stay in touch with, with your show because you have so many great guests on. You do such a wonderful job. I know I'm being followed by Peter Kessler today. I, I love being the warm-up band for Peter Kessler. It's like... It's like some local band being, you know, playing playing in front of Led Zeppelin. Um, so, you know, Peter's a wonderful friend. And you have such you have such great people on here every single show. Really, what they should pay attention to is to you, Chris, and and and, and all the great work you do. Well, I appreciate you saying that. That means a great deal to me, Tom. And yes, Peter Kessler is is the best there's ever been. So I'm looking forward to our conversation with him here in just a moment. Yeah, please, but Tom, please. it's always a privilege getting to spend time with you and having you as part of the show. I hope you'll come back again soon. Share more of your stories and your lessons and your insights with us because you're fantastic. Chris, I appreciate it. Uh, I'll, I'll come on anytime you'll have me. I enjoy being with you. Please give Peter my best. And to everybody out there, have a great golf day. I appreciate that, Tom. Take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up with you again real soon. Thanks, Chris. God bless. All right. Take care, Tom. That's a top 100 instructor and really, like I say, top five instructor, Tom Patry. Great stuff. You know, be sure to follow him online, TomPatry.com. Follow him on Twitter. Send him those videos. Go to V1 Golf. That's fantastic stuff. I love, you know, seeing all the different things that he is, you know, doing for junior golf and uh, people that need a lesson or two or insights. It's, it's really great stuff to watch. It's out there on his, uh, on his Twitter feed as well. So you can check it out there and see what, see what you can get because it's really, really fantastic. Can't thank Tom enough. Always a privilege to get to spend some time with Tom Patry. All right, before we get to my next guest, Peter Kessler, I want to give a shout out to our friends at the PGA Tour Superstore for a fun, interactive experience and the best selection of golf clubs, apparel, and gear for golfers at all levels, uh, all levels. Check out our friends at the PGA Tour Superstore. Whether you're a pro or a beginner, they're your one-stop golf shop for great deals and all your golfing needs. You can save yourself a little time, too, by shopping and placing your order online at PGATourSuperstore.com. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. I also want to give a reminder to you about our friends over at the Orange Whip, makers of the Orange Whip Trainer. If you haven't checked it out yet you and you're looking for a great way to limber up before your rounds or improve your club head speed or just, you know, get your golf club or your golf swing you know, back on track after, you know, it's been on the shelf, you know, all winter long, you need to go check out the Orange Whip. Folks, there isn't a better way to loosen up and get prepared for your rounds than by swinging the Orange Whip. My father, 73 years old, he plays five days a week. He's using the Orange Whip to loosen up before his rounds. It's helping me get loose before my rounds, plus improving my club head speed 
take a look at what a great training aid that it is. And I wouldn't say it, folks, if I wasn't using it myself. Go online to see for yourself at orangewhiptrainer.com. And, folks, you know how we like to keep things on the positive side here on Next on the Tee and have a positive approach both in life and on the golf course. Well, we're excited to be partnering with the folks over at SyncIt.com. Keep putting that positive thought in your mind with their great line of T-shirts and hats. To win any tournament, right, you got to sink the final putt. We wake up every day, you know, we're trying to finish strong, sink the putt, close the deal, work hard, get better at whatever we're doing each and every day. Well, have the confidence to push forward towards your dreams with an unwavering passion, and you're going to sink it in life. Check out their great line, again, of T-shirts and hats at sinkit.com. All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Peter Kessler. You know, Peter is the is the voice of golf, and, you know, he's got a great new podcast out now, folks, that's, you know, recently, you know, started to hit the airways. It's called Reading the Break. That's absolutely outstanding. You can find it available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Be sure to interact with him as well on his Facebook page and on Twitter, at Peter Kessler. And as I've said many times, no one knows more about the history of golf than Peter does. And when you layer on top of that, that he's got the best delivery style for sharing stories that is associated, that are associated with a rich history of the game of golf. Well, then you've got magic, right? And you've got the best possible podcast that you could have. At the beginning of the year, right, I said there are five things that I hope to see in 2017, and one of them was the return of Peter Kessler to the airwaves. And I hope this new podcast is just the start of even bigger and grander things that Peter is going to be putting out there for us. But it's an honor to have him back on the show with me again this morning. Good morning, Peter. Thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, it's great to be with you. You know, I was listening to your uh, chat with Tom and about 30 yards and in, and he is so on the money because if you look at any 15 handicapper on almost every single hole out of 18 holes, they have a shot of 30 yards or less. They're going to hit their drive somewhere they can play it. They're going to hit their second shot somewhere around the green within 30 yards and they're going to have a 30-yard shot. It might be a bunker shot. It might be over the bunker. might be a chip shot. But he's right. If you cannot stub or not blade a shot from 30 yards and in, you're going to take a lot of strokes off your score. I play with an 82-year-old guy who can't reach any of the holes in regulation, and yet he shoots 83, 84, and that's because he's getting it on the green where he can make a putt from somewhere, even if it's 20 feet, he's putting. He's not chipping again. He's not blading his bunker shot over the green. So Tom couldn't be more with it. I've known Tom since the 1980s when we were both in New York at the same time. And he's a great teacher, and that's a really good piece of advice. Yes, it is. And, yeah, Tom is absolutely fantastic. And Peter, I wanted to uh, start our time together this morning talking about your new podcast. You're four episodes in, and each one is really well done. What got you interested in getting back into podcasting? You know, I had I had done one in 2013, but I think I was just early because nobody was listening to podcasts in 2013. And I had some pretty good stuff up, and we had a reasonable size audience, but it wasn't large enough to attract advertisers. and it just felt like it didn't make sense that that there were really no golf podcasts. There were very few podcasts, generally speaking. You know, now here we are several years later, and uh, a cousin called me on Thanksgiving to say hello and said the time is right for you to do a podcast. And a 
good friend of mine who actually came up with the concept of drive, chip, and putt, for which he never got paid, ran into me at the PGA Merchandise Show in Orlando and said, it's time to do a podcast. Then the guy who got me, who convinced SiriusXM to do golf on their air and have me do the first show uh, called me and said, it's time for you to do a podcast. So I said, okay, I'll do a podcast. But I listened to, there must be a hundred golf podcasts. And, you know, without denigrating any of them, the format is very similar to the one that I used when I did a Sunday night show at the Golf Channel almost 20 years ago where I would sit in a chair and you'd have three guests and you would talk about the events of the day. So it it seemed like when I was listening that it was a television show, but I couldn't see the picture. And I thought, well, what can I do that's different, you know, if I do or don't have guests that will distinguish my podcast from everybody else's? And so I thought, well, first of all, I won't have any guests. I'm going to try to do something closer to what Paul Harvey did, you know, who was uh, a fellow who really, I guess, through the 50s through the 80s had a five-minute daily piece that he would do that was syndicated across the country, and it was an amusing little story with a neat little twist, and he had a great, great delivery. And I thought, okay, so I'll do something shorter because everything else is an hour, and an hour seemed like a long time to me um, to to do a podcast. So I thought, well, what if I did them seven minutes or I did them set, 10 minutes and I did them by myself and I tried to come up with ideas that other people weren't thinking of for their show, you know, instead of saying, well, what do you think is wrong with Tiger and we'll never see Tiger again and coming up with a, with a bunch of reasons. I thought I would try to look for subjects that, other people seem not to have thought of or dis- or if they thought of them that they chose not to discuss them. So I thought, so let's keep it short. Let's not have any guests and let's come up with stuff that will surprise people or at least get them to think, gee, I hadn't thought of that or gee, that's not the tiger conversation, you know, being reproduced all over again that I've heard and read a hundred times. So that's how it sort of all came together. And, uh, you know, and we did a little introductory show where I just spent a minute talking about what I just took three minutes to say, which was what we were going to do, keep them short, have no guests, try to take interesting points of view. And, uh, and then we did, I've done four regular episodes. I did the last two was the day before the Masters, and the last one was uh, the day after the Masters. And I tried to take points of view that other people didn't have, like, you know, people were saying, well, okay, so now who's the best player to never win a major? And everybody said, well, it's got to be Ricky Fowler, or it's got to be Lee Westwood, um, and, or it's got to be Matt Kuchar. And I said, there is no best player to never win a major. So I took a completely different point of view. Matt Kuchar's won seven times. The one time that he looked like he might be in position to win a Masters, he freaked and he blew it. Lee Westwood has won two times on the PGA Tour in 25 years, two times, and Ricky Fowler has won four times and has never won a single or a team match in Ryder Cup. So how is that best player to never win a major? You know, I would make Lee Westwood best player to never win three times on the PGA Tour, 
but you know, but not best player to never win a major. So taking a contrary view, one that I hadn't heard anybody else say before, and uh, and so far it's been interesting. But it's really hard to come up with. It's really hard to come up with points of view that no, you know, there's a lot of bright people in our business, and uh, you know, you look at Alan Shipnuck writes every day, and Jaime Diaz writes a lot, and Lauren Rubenstein, and these are very, very bright, sophisticated, savvy guys who are really, you know, good thinkers, and you know, they 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 come up with some fantastic stuff. So it's been it's been hard to come up with the ideas, but then once you come up with them, then you, then you just go ahead and run with them and say what you think. But to that end, Peter, you know, you talk about hard, you know, hard for things to come up and, and to maybe talk about. But the history of the game, I, I'm always remarked, Peter, at how how little people know about the history of the game and how great the players were from Bobby Jones, you know, up through, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s. Right. I, I You know, Tiger Woods seems to be like everyone's, you know, uh, measuring stick. Tiger is the greatest of all time. And the argument. And I get, you know, I get in so many conversations because I'm a, I'm a Jack Nicholas guy, right? And to me, Tiger Woods, when you look at the, you know, the record that Jack had for, you know, not only wins and seconds and thirds and top tens, you know, Tiger is not even close in, you know, how, you know, how often he contended in majors and that sort of thing. But I, I just, I, I think, you know, people don't know how great the players were, and you know everything about that history and how great those players were. It seems, you know, I, I think I think we need an education and a remembrance of how great those players were and how great they played and how, you know, how often they contended and that sort of thing. You're, I mean, your thoughts, I mean, it, it, is that something that you're interested in, in sharing? Or are you looking to go a completely different direction in what you're going to, what you want to put out there in the rest of your podcast? Uh, are you talking about the podcast specifically or our chat right now? Well, both. Okay. Well, no, I no, I I, I think uh, it's perfectly appropriate to discuss those things on the podcast. As a matter of fact, I was very good friends with Tommy Bolt. Tommy was both in nineteen was born in nineteen sixteen. His family moved from Oklahoma to Texas in a covered wagon in nineteen sixteen, and. Tommy won the 1958 U.S. Open. He won 15 times on tour. They finally put him in the World Golf Hall of Fame in 2002, and I got to induct him, which was which was really a lot of fun. And he was he he was uh, of a time when golf had characters, and uh, he would get mad, you know, that he would go go to the U.S. Open and he'd get to the first tee and the official would say, play, go ahead and play away. And Tommy would say, don't tell me when to play. I'll play when I'm ready to play. And, uh, <laughs> he had a great sense of humor and he, he was, uh, he told me that when they used to play with Hickory in the, now in the 1920s, after, you know, he became a teenager in the late twenties, he said the way that they used to fine tune the kick, on the hickory shafts was they would take Coke bottles and they would break them and they would use the broken edges of the glass to shave the wood down very, very carefully until it had just the right amount of flexibility to have the ball react in the way that they had intended to have it react. And I thought that was a fascinating piece of history. And Tommy, uh, Tommy was getting ready to turn pro and then 
it was time for World War II, and and he came up with the idea that he should be the director of golf for the forces in Rome during World War II, and a general who liked Tommy's golf game fell for it, and they made him the director of golf, which meant he just played golf every day, and he won so much money playing golf that he had to buy a trunk when it was time to be shipped home to put all the money in. And then there were guys on the boat who played with shaved dice, and he played uh, lots of craps on the ship going back and lost all the money and sold the trunk. And he was a really good friend of mine, and he lived in Central Florida, uh, as I still do now. He lived about an hour and a half away. And when he was in his late 80s and early 90s, he could still break uh, 70 from the men's tees at about 6,350 yards out at Black Diamond, which is not an easy golf course. And he was a big guy. He was about 6'2", maybe. He could have even been maybe 6'2". He was still in good shape in terms of the way that he looked. He never got real heavy. But he had carpal tunnel syndrome, and he had double bypass surgery. He had all kinds of stuff. And, you know, I used to say to him, what's it like to be 90? And he would say, it's not for sissies. But when he was 90, I used to go out and play golf with him at Black Diamond. And I do not believe two things ever happened. I don't think I ever saw him hit a ball out of the rough. That's how straight he was off the tee. And I don't think in maybe 70 rounds, maybe I played with him, I never saw him hit a bunker shot. I never saw him miss a green into a bunker. I saw him leave it just short of the green. I've seen him be just over the green. But I never saw him in a greenside bunker. I don't recall him ever hitting a bunker shot. And it's funny because it reminds me um, of Nick Faldo telling me that in 1990, when he won the Masters in the two-hole playoff over Raymond Floyd, when Ray hit it into the water on 11, the second playoff hole, Faldo said that in his 74 holes of the 1990 Masters, he didn't miss one ball to the right, and he didn't miss one ball to the left on an approach to any of 74 greens. He was never in a greenside bunker, and he never had to chip or pitch across the green, which is, you know, hard to believe. He would be just short a couple of times. On the 12th hole, I remember he hit it into the back bunker uh, once, but he never never right and never left. And that's how Bolt played. He, and he couldn't get his hands past hip high, but yet he could still hit it about 240 or 245. It was, you know, I was, and this is now going back almost 20 years, I, and I could, you know, I could shoot 77 to 82 then and I wasn't a long hitter but I wasn't a really short hitter but he was longer than I was and he was you know 40 years older than I than I was I mean he was he was uh, he was absolutely unbelievable with the driver and then with a five wood from 155 to maybe 205 he could hit any shot that was required into a hole with a five wood. If when it was 155, 160, he might choke the thing down. But if he had, you know, sort of a full shot, he would hit whatever the pin said. That's what he did. If it was all the way back right and there were slopes and humps and bumps, 
and the pin wasn't on a flat section, he would fly it in and he would hit it low and it would cut and it would run back to the hole. The pin was in the front of the green, he would hit it straight up in the air, it would have no curve and it would come straight down. If it was on the left side and it was short, he'd hit a really high draw that would just fall a little bit to the left. And I, I rarely saw him chip because he kind of hit all the greens. And I remember one day we were playing and he had the most straightforward chip you could possibly have. It was like 25 feet. The green was flat where the pin was. His ball was maybe two feet off the front of the green. It was sitting perfectly. And he looked down and he put his hands on his hips and he said, I've never had a shot like this before. And I said, you've had a shot like this before 20,000 times in your life. I said, it's the most straightforward chip shot anybody's ever had. So he like goes to his bag and he pretends to take out one club and then he takes out another club. He knew what he was going to do the whole time. And he took out a club and he holds the chip and he looks at me and goes, tough shot, boy. And uh, <laughs> if uh, the pin was all the way back on a par five on a plateau, and he was just short of the green and two, I would say to him, what do you, I remember a situation saying, how do you play the shot? Do you, you roll it all the way back and just try to get it over that last hump so it gets to the flat section because it's too risky to try to fly it there and, and lose it over the green? And he said, no. He said, you pick a spot two feet from the top of the, at the top of the hill towards the flag, and you land it there. Just pick a spot two feet. And I said, who can hit it to a spot exactly two feet from another spot? You know, from maybe 40 yards, 50 yards, you know, big, long green. And uh, and he took out some kind of a wedge. And he landed it two feet or so past the top of the hill. And it just trickled into the hole. And he'd look at you and go, tough shot, boy. I played <laughs> with him the last round that... Uh, that I believe he played. We played out at Black Diamond, and he was maybe 92, and his family was going to move him. To, uh, I was so mad about this. And they were going to take him to Arkansas to live on some kind of Indian reservation for the, his last days, and he wasn't going to get to play golf. And he was the mayor at Black Diamond where he played. I mean, we would have a birthday surprise party for him every year that he would plan, and then he would walk in to the big, big ballroom, dining room at Black Diamond, you know, like he didn't know there was going to be a big party, just, you know, dressed in all purple and white, which were his two colors. And we would have two chairs set up, and he would shake everybody's hands, never act surprised, walk right to the front of the room and sit down in one of the two chairs, and I would sit down in the other chair, and we would do an interview for 45 or 50 minutes, and I remember we played our the last nine before they were getting ready to take him away, and I was really upset about it. I we had gotten very, very, very close, and we played. They they got a lot. I think fifty four holes out at the Black Diamond, and there's this one nine that's a little shorter, and the last hole is a par three, and he hit a five wood to about thirty feet, and he made the putt for a two, and he looked down at me and he said. Uh, he said, Peter, he said, that's old dad's last round. Glad you were around to enjoy it. Glad you could see it. And I started to get tears in my eyes. And we walked back, uh, got in the cart and drove back up to the, the cart area. And and we, he, when he would have a drink, he would order 
Cabernet Sauvignon, as was how he used to call it, and he would have his Cabernet Sauvignon. And uh, and I walked him out to a car, the car, and I kissed him on the cheek, and I said, I know I'm never going to see you again. And he said, no, we'll get together, boy. I promise we'll get together. And I talked to him one or two times after he got to Arkansas. It was hard to get through, and people didn't answer the phone. They didn't have a messaging machine. It was really a mess. And and then I remember when he passed away, and I heard about it a couple of days later, and his wife, Mary Lou, sent me one of his white Hogan caps that he used to wear. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the history of the just the players themselves forgetting the the, the championships and the evolution of the equipment and the and the golf courses and the rules and and that just, just you know just the guys of what and and the ladies too you know what made it so incredibly fascinating as a subject. Yeah, and that, those are the kinds of stories I think that uh, we could all benefit by hearing more about. We don't know enough about those stories, and I appreciate you sharing that one about sure. Mr. Bolt. That's a great story. Peter, you know, we've, we've talked, you know, mentioned the Masters, you know, a couple of times. We really wanted to get your thoughts on what we saw last week. Sure. It, you know, it obviously came down to a two-player race between Sergio and, and Justin Rose, but the leaderboard heading into the final round was filled with, you know, really great players, you know, Fowler, Spieth, Adam Scott, to name just three. Were you surprised or, you know, perhaps disappointed that none of those guys made a charge and then what we ended up seeing between the two-man race between Garcia and Rose? No, I like the way the thing worked out. I thought that was fine. I mean, sure, you'd like, you know, 20 guys to all be shooting a zillion under and have it be completely crazy, but uh, but I thought it was great. It, I thought it was pretty fascinating. You know, the first two days, the average score was 75. It was very windy, and yet the best players in the field were able to generally handle the conditions very well. And also, of course, when the average is 75, in part because the course is difficult, in part because there's wind, and in part because the bottom half of the field generally has no business being there, you know, you're going to have a higher scoring average of the guys who missed the cut. So I thought it was great the conditions the guys had to deal with the first two days because of the wind. You know, the par fives played as par four and a half. Everybody had wedges in. Jordan Spieth made the nine when he dunked it in the water on uh, number 15 and um it, it made it, it really put the display of the quality of what they could do under tough conditions you know right there under the spotlight so the best players actually played the best under the toughest circumstances and then the scoring average for the weekend for, uh, just to round it off was 72 on both days and the winning score was nine under par which to me is perfect because if the winning score is between, say, 4 and 10 under, then in my view, the golf course has been set up with a great deal of difficulty, but not unfairly in that if you could get to 4 or 10 under par, closer to 10 would be my preference. It would show that it, that, that it would yield to brilliance and that the best players in the field could average two under or so per day for each of the four days. And that's exactly how it turned out. The two guys finished at nine under par. So I thought from a scoring perspective, the, the whole thing worked out very fairly. I thought the, and the, 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 to me, the most interesting thing 
that happened is something that we didn't see, which was what was going on in Justin Rose's brain when Sergio was in the woods, because at that time, Sergio had just bogeyed 10 and 11, and now Justin had a two-shot lead, and his drive is farther down the fairway than where Sergio is in the trees, and Sergio, you know, had to hit, Sergio had to hit his fourth, his third shot before Justin had to hit his second shot, and Sergio's shot was going to be a layup. So Justin's got to be standing in the fairway thinking, the guy's going to make six. I've got a middle iron to a par five from the middle of the fairway. I'm going to hit my second shot, and he's going to have to hit his fourth shot over the water. I could easily hit the middle of this green two putt for birdie and he could easily make a six and that would give me a four shot lead and I think he relaxed for just a second I think he let his guard down for just a second and it was enough to hurt him the rest of the day and I think the evidence of that was that he played what I would consider to be a, a very loose second shot in the 13 he missed it way to the right instead of hitting it 15-20 feet from the hole you know, he had a mid-iron in his hand. He had he had one of the easier shots you can have if you're that caliber of player in the 13. Then hit a great chip to four feet and left it right underneath the hole where you're supposed to. Then Sergio, you know, hits that great wedge from 90 yards and makes the six-footer. And Justin doesn't touch the hole with his four-footer. He has straight uphill putt. And so, you know, you, you, you when you say the word it was a pivotal hole... To my mind, that would connote that there were two different scores on that hole, but yet they both made fives, but yet I thought it was a very pivotal hole because it looked like Justin pick up at least a shot, and he's got to be staying there thinking too, and I thought he it was a very loose play in the second shot, and I think he freaked out over his putt because all of a sudden he needed it to just pick up one shot and missed it. You know, and then on seven, you know, on seventeen, he played it. Uh, he didn't play a good tee shot. He didn't play a good second shot. He didn't play a good bunker shot. He didn't hit a good putt. On eighteen, his second shot was not a good shot. He got a carom that, if you play at my course, you would never get where the ball would carom actually towards the flagstick. You get a, you play at my club, it caroms towards major trouble. He, you know, he hit a mound and got a, you know, I thought a once in a lifetime kick. I thought it was a very, very iffy shot with a shortish club and it kicked dead left and he left himself a very makeable putt that most players seem to miss from that side. Marco Mira made it to win one year and his was longer, 20, 25 feet, you know, and Justin only had eight feet. And then Sergio, of course, put the stroke on it that your friends put on it from five feet when there's $2 on the line on Sunday is hands completely locked down at impact on the five footer to win. And he pushed the putt. It was a left center putt. We've seen the putt a zillion times. He started at an inch to the right and then went an inch to the right. And, um, and then of course, Justin then hit another bad shot and then had no shot out of the woods. And, uh, but yet it was funny because as they were walking to the green, Justin was letting Sergio walk ahead of him on the playoff hole as though the thing was over. But if Justin had made his putt and Sergio had missed his putt, well, they would have been tied and they would have had another playoff hole. But, 
Justin was acting like it was now down to a mere formality that, you know, he was going to two-putt for bogey and Sergio would two-putt for par and, and Justin would lose. So I thought I thought his whole mindset changed in the, uh, in, 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 in the middle of the 13th hole. And I hadn't heard anybody else talk about what I just talked about. So I put that, you know, in, in, in the podcast because I just felt it was something that people might find interesting because I didn't see it, you know, uh, written anywhere and I hadn't heard anybody talk about it. And it was interesting too, that claw grip really that it, it, you know, you just, it, it looks like there's something wrong with you when you use the claw grip, but at the end of the day, Sergio only had one three putt in 73 holes, which led the field. So he putted basically better than anybody else did, you know, and a lot of times, you know, and he didn't miss a lot of greens. So these were, uh, you know, a lot of two putts and you can't do a lot of two putting from 50 feet. If you're 50 feet, you're going to three putt. So that meant he hit a lot of irons, 25, I think he hit 80% of the greens, which placed him first or second or third, somewhere really close to the top and I think he hit more fairways than anybody else did his numbers were really staggering and uh so you know the only you know the only putt we saw him miss of consequence was the one that would have uh given him the win plus actually missing the five footer for birdie on 16 so that claw grip from five or six feet under pressure just you know just doesn't look like the the greatest way to putt and it looks like a real band-aid but yet at the end of the day he turned out to putt better than anybody else for the entire week, which I thought was fascinating given a cu- the couple of the strokes that we saw on 16 and 18 in regulation that were really, really iffy. And Peter, you know, we obviously we saw Justin Rose in the playoff, you know, hit his ball into into the woods. But for people that have never been on the 18th tee or stood behind the 18th tee, to see what it's like to have to, you know, drive on that golf on that golf hole. Talk about how narrow a shoot and how tough a drive. I think it's underrated for how difficult it is to drive on 18. Oh, it's. It, I mean, you know, on TV it looks extremely narrow, and it's at least that narrow when you're there in person. You know, if you go, you know, play the course as a member or a guest, you play from 6,350 yards, and these guys are playing from 7,500 yards. So that tee is way, 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 way back. And the thing about it is, if you play the back tee like they do, your ball can't start to curve until it gets all the way through the chute. You can't, you know, you it can't be a recreational player, 15 handicapper, you know, slice kind of thing. You could be go right into the woods to the left. And, and if you're a player who hits a draw, you you're you're in trouble there too because either you're going to hit the trees as your ball takes takes off from the tee, or if you start your ball down the center of the of the fairway off the 18th tee, your ball is going to hook it and eventually find the woods, places where a lot of players have had a lot of trouble over the years. I remember one year Tom Watson had a chance to win, and he and he overdrew his ball. I don't know if it was quite a hook, but it was right in between a draw and a hook. And he ended up in the trees, and he had no play whatsoever. So you can really get in trouble there. The 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 miss that they usually make though is to the right because if you hit it dead straight off the tee, and you hit it long enough, you can reach those two fairway bunkers. 
And those bunkers are no joy. They're 160, 165 yards in that area away from the center of the green. And they have high lips, and it's a difficult shot. So you don't want to hit a draw up the center because you can draw it right into the bunker. So the cut is the preferred shot. And when these guys cut a ball, it doesn't really curve as much as it just kind of falls to the right. I remember in 74, and I lived in L.A., I went and watched 62-year-old Sam Sneed at the practice tee at the L.A. Open where he finished second to Dave Stockton at the age of 62. And, and I was just I was the only one there. It was like 6 o'clock one night, and I just watched him hit practice shot after practice shot, and the ball would go dead straight, and then at the very, very end, it would just fall to the right. It didn't curve to the right. But Justin went, you know, Justin hit a kind of a block cut which is why he ended up in the trees and which is why you see a lot of guys end up in the trees. They're trying to hit their, you can't hit three wood cause you can't get up the, the hill far enough to leave yourself reasonable second shot. So you've got to hit a driver. And, uh, you know, and again, I, I think it all stemmed from his momentary letdown on 13 with the Sergio commotion going on and it being an unsatisfactory result for Justin and uh, that he had never quite, quite regrouped, and it evidenced himself. And this is major championship pressure, and a guy who looked like you were going to have a four-shot lead, all of a sudden you're in a playoff, and the guy's in perfect shape. So I, uh, I, I, I must tell you, I agree with you completely. It's, it's such a hard tee shot. I said to Greg Norman once, I said, how hard is that tee shot from the back of 18? And he said, it's like trying to hit it up a gnat's ass. <laughs> That's a great quote. Peter, one more before we let you go. And you mentioned Dave Stockton. You know, one of the things that, you know, you you certainly put out over social media recently, you talk about, you know, the World Golf Hall of Fame and who's who's in and who shouldn't be in or who should be out. And one of the things, you know, I've been campa- uh, campaigning for for years is if Freddie Couples is in with one major and 15 tour or a regular tour wins 12 on the on the champions tour so if you combine it all 27 wins and you know dave stockton is a guy with two major championships and 24 combined wins it doesn't make sense to me a criteria who's in who's out chichi rodriguez is in with no major wins and uh and and nine you know nine tour victories talk about you know the world golf hall of fame and, and your thoughts on you know this criteria and how guys are getting in and should be in or shouldn't be in well, I mean, to your Dave Stockton point, first of all, I mean, under the current rules of election, it's just, it's now just become, you know, we've got to put somebody in every year because we want to have a show. And so they keep lowering their standards. It used to be, if it was the greatest players that ever lived, not one of the really good players of their time. And, you know, and you, you look at Sergio's record right now, he's got, 10 wins, which is what I think Dave Stockton had on the regular tour, right? Didn't he win 10 times? And Mm -hmm. one major, and Dave Stockton had two majors, and Dave Stockton had to play against Jack and Arnie and Billy Casper and Lee Trevino and Tom Weiskopf and Tom Watson and Seri Ballesteros. I think they were better players. I think he had to play against better players. I think Jack had to win his majors against better players 
than Tiger certainly had to win his majors against. I mean, you know, Arnold won seven, and Gary Player won nine, and Trevino won six. And I mean, you know, these are guys who actually really win major championships and really win tournaments. And Billy Casper won 50 to- 51 times on the regular tour. <clears throat> and uh, But Dave Stockton won the PGA championship twice. And I would certainly say that a major championship is worth at least five regular tour wins. For sure, at least five. I remember asking Brad Faxon once when he had five or six wins at the time. This is going back quite a few years. I think he finished with eight or something. But when he had five or six, I said to him, would you trade your wins for one major championship? And he said to me, in a heartbeat, you know, Walter Hagen said, who won 11 major championships, he said, any, and he said anybody can win one major championship. He said anybody can win one major championship. But he said it takes a really great player to win two major championships. Now, he waited until he'd won his second before he said that, but never mind. He ended up winning <laughs> 11, 11 of the things, and he was winning them against players like Bobby Jones and Gene Sarazen. So it wasn't exactly, you know, he wasn't playing against the two of us. You know, and those are the kinds of players that are supposed to be in the in the World Golf Hall of Fame, the greatest players of all time. You know, and you know, if it was up to me, uh, you know, I, the the minimum, the minimum requirement would be twenty wins and two major championships. And it's funny because that's what Greg Norman has on the PGA Tour: twenty wins and two major championships. You would think it'd be a, but he won like ninety times around the world, but. You know, the other places where these guys win are not as good a field as the PGA Tour. I mean, you look at Lee Westwood's record. He's won twice on the PGA Tour, once like 16 years ago, and the other a few years ago when he was halfway to the airport and Robert Garrigus made triple bogey on the last hole to allow Lee Westwood to catch him, and Lee won the playoffs. So these guys won two times on the PGA Tour, no major championships. He was the worst player on the team out of the best names, biggest names on the European Tour in last year's Ryder Cup, missing all those two-footers. I mean, it was crazy, the stuff that he was doing to let his team down on the greens. And he's won 23 times otherwise, but that's like the minor leagues. You know, you know, win, you know, winning, winning in Japan doesn't it's not doesn't make you one of the best players in the world. And to have a Seo Aoki who won one time on the PGA Tour with a walk-off eagle at the Hawaiian Open, I remember it very well, may hold a wedge from about 120 yards and ended up winning by a shot. They put him in the World Golf Hall of Fame. He didn't do anything like around the world. He just had to be from Japan. Gary Player did stuff all around the world and won, you know, what, won 25 times or so, maybe it's slightly less, 21, 24, 25 times on the PGA Tour. But he had nine major championship victories, but he won 165 times around the world. That's an international player. Sarioki didn't do anything like that. And Gary bought places to golf where they, you know, basically had never heard of the game before. And, you know, so to me, that that's what you're talking about, greatest of all time. I would never have let Freddie Couples into the World Golf Hall of Fame. In 30 years, he won 15 times with one major championship. It's a joke. 
I've seen Freddie hit, and I really like Freddie. And he he hits the ball so good that you know if you make him hit twenty five irons on the practice tee, you can literally just place a blanket over where the balls come to rest. I mean that's how accurate he is. He's slicing and hooking and hitting balls in crazy places. If you put a hula hoop in the sky at the apex of his five iron, every ball would go right through the center of the hula hoop. Same with Davis Love, who had a slightly better record, won a few more times than, than Freddie did. But, you know, with Freddie's game to win 15 times in 30 years with one major, you know, great guy, you know, the, the whole President's Cup thing, I get it. Um, you know, he's very, very cool. He's a handsome man. He looks great playing golf. He's got an incredible golf swing. But I never would he's not one of the, he wasn't even one of the best players of his own time. Not even of his own time. VJ Swing Singh was one of the best players of his own time. Uh, Phil Mickelson is one of the best players of his own time. I mean, Ernie Els is one of the best players of his own time. These are guys with four and five majors. Freddie Cummins had one major. It does not make you even one of the best of your own time. So how do you get into the World Golf Hall of Fame? You get in because the powers that be want, want people to come to a ceremony every year and promote the World Golf Hall of Fame that nobody goes to because it's in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing to see when you get there. And the uh, so the criteria now has you know really really been reduced. But okay, it is what it is. So if you're letting Sergio in and you're letting Freddie in. And then they're going to vote Furyk in. Same thing, Jim Furyk, fifth, 16 wins in one major. Wouldn't even maybe, I wouldn't even let him be on the list when we sat down at the table to decide. Wouldn't even put him on the list. I mean, he you know, he had like nine 54-hole leads over a seven-year period recently and won one time. You know, just like crazy bad numbers. And this guy hits so many balls close to the hole, it's absolutely unbelievable. So, but if the current standards are what they are, and then Sergio Garcia gets in, and a Freddie Couples gets in, then I would I would put Dave in. You know, now ten wins is not a ton on the PGA Tour, and I don't put as much credence in the Champions Tour because it's a closed shop. If you're not 50 years old, you can't have a Champions Tour record. So I I kind of make it for it has to be a tournament where anybody who's good enough to play can play. But I'd certainly make one of his majors worth five wins, which would put him in the 15 and one category, which makes you a lock to get into the World Golf Hall of Fame now. Now Larry Nelson had three majors and ten wins, and he's in. Chichi had eight wins and no majors. I don't know how they got him. I, I, I've never talked to anybody on, about this in the powers that be, but. How they ever let Chi-Chi in was like the craziest thing ever. Eight wins and he never won anything important. I was just like, why? Because he was from Puerto Rico? He wasn't an international player. He was just from an international place that basically part of the United States. So I never understood that one. But yes, under current criteria, I would, I, I would certainly put Dave Stockton on my list and I, and I would, and I would, and I would go ahead and I would put him in because Freddie with 15 and one is in, and Furyk's going to be in at 16 and one. Then you know, and they're even talking about Zach Johnson. When Zach won at St Andrews a couple of years ago, meaning that he had now won two majors, 
uh, one of them being the Masters and one of them being the Open Championship at Augusta National at uh, the, the St Andrews. You know, he won at two of the most prestigious places in golf. Those were his. Uh, those, that gave him twelve wins when he won at St Andrews, and all of the writers were going, "Welcome to the Hall of Fame!" at at, with, at twelve and two. So, you know, the writers, a lot of the writers, aren't helping anymore by you know, welcoming Zach Johnson into the world. I don't think of taking a walk through history when I think of Zach Johnson. I think of a guy who was a very good player, one of the real good players of his time, not one of the best players of his time. And, you know, but, you know, if he's going to get voted in, Dave Stockton, Ryder Cup captain, you know, and you throw in the intangibles of what he's contributed back to the game of golf through helping people with their putting and, you know, you, you give him you give a little credit for the senior tour record and stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, he he's as deserving as Freddie is. Peter, before we let you go, remind our listeners about you know about your podcast, where they can go to listen to it, and how they can scri- uh, subscribe to it. Because again, it's really fantastic. And I appreciate that. Uh, well, you can just go to SoundCloud.com. And the name of the show is Reading the Break, Reading the Break, like the reading the break of a putt. And you can also get it at iTunes, Reading the Break. You can subscribe. I set up a little website called Reading the Break where you can subscribe and we'll send you a email every time we put one up on iTunes. But it's just as easy to just go straight to iTunes and not go through the whole procedure of subscribing because you can just go ahead and listen to it. But SoundCloud, you know, you can you can get it from any device. I have an introductory show, which is one minute of explanation and a few minutes of stories, and then four shows uh, that uh, are typical of the kinds of stories that uh, that that you you ask me to tell when I'm on your show, and which I'm delighted to do. So, and I'm also on Facebook at Peter Kessler. Um, I, I engage there a lot. I I put up a lot of questions and. A lot of people respond to them. We talked about the Hall of Fame and who's your favorite, was Arnie your favorite player ever? And uh, we talked about the Lexi Thompson thing, which is a whole other thing that still really got me upset. And uh, yeah, so yeah, reading the break at SoundCloud, reading the break at iTunes, uh, and Peter Kessler on Facebook is where you can find me. And we'll see how this podcast goes. It's definitely different. It's definitely different. You know, it's, if you like if you like the stories that I tell you here, then then you'll like the podcast. And it's short; it's seven, three or four of them are seven minutes. I got carried away last week with the Masters and went fifteen minutes. But um, I'm trying to typically keep them short and no guests and good stories. And they are; they're all outstanding stories. Is, you know, is is this a you're wetting our whistle for for something? Something else coming down the road, like I said, you know, one of the five things I was hoping for this year is the return of Peter Kessler to the airways, and we've gotten it here with the podcast. What's next for you? I don't know. I mean, if uh, if I can get some good traction with the podcast, um, then, well, that would be a terrific thing. And, you know, and then it might lead to, you know, might lead to a radio show. I I've had a few people come to me and say, you should do these in video just sitting in a chair telling the stories and start a YouTube channel with you just sitting there and telling these stories so we can see you as you're talking. I don't know. I, I haven't been able to figure out if that if that's something that does or doesn't make sense at this point. Um, 
I mean, you know, it's, it, it, the picture's always great, but, you know, a lot of, you know, just like on your show, it's not necessary for us to see you because the topics are so interesting and we can visualize everything and use our imagination that we don't, you know, and we're not talking about somebody's swing where you need to be looking at that swing as we discuss it. You know, even Tom talking about 30-yard shots, we all know what he means. We don't have to see him making little swings with a sandwich and hitting a 30-yard shot. So so maybe I'll do that, and, you know, you know, and if I get lucky, uh, you know, maybe maybe more fun things will come along. But right now I'm going to try to get this podcast right and see if we can build up an audience. And the biggest problem, of course, is distribution, is, is getting the word out. I need to end up connecting with somebody who's got a – couple of million names that they email to either daily or weekly to join forces with to get the word out on the podcast because Facebook doesn't it doesn't doesn't get you enough doesn't get you enough eyeballs you know and Twitter you still don't get enough people you know who are who are paying attention you know you need to need to get in front of a couple of million people via email a couple of times a week saying, hey, there's a cool new podcast out, check it out. Then I think we would start to pick up a little more traction. But, you know, you've been fantastic. Um, you've been posting about it on Facebook, which I'm really appreciative. And I saw that you were over on iTunes giving it a rave, and I really appreciated that. And you've sent me a couple of personal emails telling me you really think I'm on the right track, so I really appreciate that. Um, you and, and your show and your producer and uh, your team have been uh, really, really nice to me and have really supported my efforts like you're doing right this minute. And uh, I'm extremely appreciative, and I really enjoy the show. I actually meant to call in earlier um, so I could just, like, I knew Tom was going to be on today, and I hadn't heard him speak for a while, and but I did catch seven or eight minutes. He's great. And uh, so, again, congratulations on a great show and great questions and great preparation. And for the support that you give all of us who appear. Thank you very, very much. Well, I appreciate you very, very much, Peter, as well. And like I've said many times, there's no better way to spend a Saturday morning than listening to you share, you know, your stories and your insights. No matter how how much time I get with you, it's never enough. So I Thanks, can't buddy. thank you for, enough for continuing uh, to be a part of the show. And hopefully you'll come back real soon and share more of it. And, and uh, anything that, you know, we can do, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a huge Peter Kessler fan. So, you know, we'll be out there plugging your show because uh, not only, you know, is it great content that you put out there, you're a fantastic person, and I can't thank you enough. Well, it goes both ways, and anything, of course, that I can do for you in the show, I'm always happy to do, and, and I'm thrilled when you when you contact me and ask me to be on. I love being on the show, so, you know, the answer is always yes, and it can't be soon enough until we can do it the next time, so thank you. All right, Peter, thank you as well. All the best to you and your family, Peter. Best of luck with the podcast, and uh like I say, hopefully we catch up real soon. Thanks, Chris. Same, all the same things to you. Thank you, Peter. That is the, the great Peter Kessler, the voice of golf. And, and folks, I, I can't say it strongly enough or more sincerely. That podcast is absolutely outstanding. And Peter was kind enough to share a lot of the stories, you know, here with me this morning and here with all of us this morning that he has put out there on that podcast. But you really need to go check it out. Follow him on Facebook. He's right there. He does put out a lot of questions, and he you know loves the interaction of folks when he poses the questions. Give him a follow on Twitter. He's at Peter Kessler, and I listen to the show on SoundCloud and on iTunes as well. So it's it's great content. It's great stuff. You're going to be really happy 
that you listen to it. And to his point, you know, he's, you know, seven to 15 minutes and you get a great story every single time he publishes a podcast. So thanks to Peter. Hopefully we get to have him back on the show again real soon. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. But before we close up shop, you know, we always like to remind you about the great things that PGA Tour Pro Jim Estes and the great folks over at the Salute Military Golf Association continue to do. So let's hear a word from our friend Jim. The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S. If you are a wounded veteran interested in participating or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org. That's smga.org. Yeah, folks, you know, Jim and his uh, his team are doing some amazing things. They continue to do it over at the Salute Military Golf Association. To find out more information and to see how you can get involved, go to smga.org. All right, everybody, my sincere thanks again to Tom Patry and Peter Kessler for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please give me your thoughts. Check out our page on Facebook, Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. Give me your feedback, your thoughts, and if you have a question, for one of our future guests or someone who has already joined the show, let me know. Send me a note on there, and uh, we'll get that uh, get that question either on the air when the person is joining us or get it to them so they can follow up with you. Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host, Bob Lazari, our announcer, Joe Lajanusa. That show airs live every Thursday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can stream it live on Blog Talk Radio as well as on the Armed Forces Radio Network. And that show, like this one, also available as a free podcast on Podbean and iHeartRadio. On Thursday Night Tailgate, we're joined every week by five NFL legends who join us to share their stories from their playing days, give us insights into today's games as well. We also highlight two players doing great things in their communities in our Spotlight on the Positive segment. You can find that show, Thursday Night Tailgate, at ThursdayNightTailgate.com. We got, that's our website, uh, our website for this show, NextOnTheT.net. From either site, you can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free, as like and like I say, keep up to date with who some of our future guests are going to be as well. I want to thank you again for choosing to listen to this show today. We know you got thousands of choices out there for shows and podcasts to listen to. We really appreciate the fact that you're making Next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.